The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 21, verses 4 through 17. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, and the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Anne Caroline. Great job. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, This is Easter Sunday, so happy Easter. Uh, I was told at the uh, party between services that I was wearing a rad pink tie, so uh, you're welcome uh, for sharing my rad pink tie with you today, and uh, it's good to be with you. We started Holy Week uh, one week ago talking about the chaos that is outside of us that affects us, the world in which we live that is fallen, that is subject to things like death and mourning and crying and pain. Uh, I was talking to some friends over dinner last night uh, and somebody said it feels like the last two weeks has been an extended Good Friday, an extended period of grief, and it, and it certainly has for uh, our city, for our community. Uh, in this very room, in the past couple of weeks, we've hosted three funerals and nearly a dozen uh, grief-oriented gatherings. And Easter provides an answer to that. Uh, we have to wait uh, for the ultimate answer, but. I love uh, the song that uh, Kelly and Dave and Britt and and the others introduced to us with the lyric, goodbye is not the end. We can know that because Jesus is risen from the dead. Today, we're going to focus on 
another form of chaos, and that's the chaos that's inside of us, which is, has less to do about the hard things that happen to us uh, and, and has more to do with the hard things that are created by us uh, in the lives of others because of this thing that the Scriptures call sin. And Peter the Apostle is our prime example of how Jesus tends to our sin in ways that we least expect him to. Uh, He meets us not with shame and scolding and guilt, but with love and affection and forgiveness and new beginnings. So I'll start this with a reflection that I wrote uh, on an experience that I had by myself walking in Percy Warner Park in 2020. This is what I wrote. You stink. When someone said this to me recently, it wasn't the sound of the words that surprised me as much as it was the person who said them. It came from someone I've known my entire life. This person understands me inside and out. I'm closer to him than I am to anyone else, including my brother, my children, and even my wife. This person told me, this person who told me that I stink was me. I said the words out loud while hiking alone. It slipped out of my mouth impulsively as if from a primal instinct without premeditation and straight from the heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what caused me while walking alone in the park to say such a thing to myself? A 37-year-old memory of a moment back in high school when in front of a bunch of other people I said something unkind to a girl in my class so that everybody would laugh. And everybody laughed and I felt filthy uh, for what I'd done. And some point later I reached out to her, apologized, received her forgiveness, and yet somehow for 37 years uh, I still haven't been able to let that moment go. That I am the kind of person who is capable of injuring somebody else in order to get a laugh to medicate my own fragile ego. 37 years later, I probably still have the same potential. Anything haunt you from your life, from your past, from your present? Anything haunt you from from what you expect of your future? I would love to introduce you today to Peter. He's one of the world's most famous moral failures. And in his moment, or after his moment of greatest failure, he is met not with shame or cancellation, but with warmth, welcome, and an invitation to become the very best version of himself, which is precisely what happens after that. (coughs) If you've ever been grossed out, if you've ever been ashamed, if you've ever felt defeated because of you, then Peter's story is a gift that God wants to entrust to your heart. And so we meet 52 Sundays a year here, uh, and Easter is one of those Sundays, and just about every one of those Sundays, there are three points to the message, and so they're going to be three points today. And they are, the best saints have also been the worst saints. Forgiveness is only the first step for a Christian. And then finally, a miraculous catch awaits for those who can receive these things. So first, the best saints have also been 
the worst saints. This is the history of God's people, and it actually starts in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11, which is a, a new, it's from a New Testament book, but this particular chapter reflects back on several Old Testament people. And this chapter, Hebrews 11, is called the Heroes of the Faith chapter. People who did mighty things in the name of God, who did faithful things out of obedience to God, and who did horrific things. It includes Moses, who had a temper. It includes Noah, who got drunk. It includes Abraham, who mistreated his wife several times. It includes Jacob, who was a habitual liar. It includes Joseph, who was an arrogant young man. It includes Samson, who was a womanizer. It includes Rahab, who was a prostitute. It includes David, who prostituted himself in various ways. That's the Old Testament. New Testament. Plenty of examples there, too. All you have to do is look at the 12 disciples that Jesus chose to be the messengers of his life, death, burial, and resurrection to the world. They included a, an IRS agent, a tax collector, a zealot, and the zealots were people who carried around daggers and stabbed people and murdered people with those daggers because they disagreed politically. A cynic, can anything good come out of Nazareth? A doubter, unless I see the marks on his hands, I will not believe. All of them fell asleep on Jesus when Jesus needed friends the most. Two egocentric brothers who put their mother up to asking Jesus for the most prominent positions in heaven. And so it goes. These are, these are the disciples. The Last Supper, <coughs> Jesus says to all of his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And they didn't all say, oh, we all know it's Judas. Instead, all of them said, is it I, Lord? And the answer to every single one of them, in different degrees, was yes. Because all of them ended up fleeing running for safety when Jesus was being crucified or taken to the cross. But let's zero in on Peter here. Let's look at the sequence of, of how his betrayal begins and, and what it leads to. It starts with pride, and that's back in the 13th chapter of John where Peter insists very loudly very boldly, yes, Lord, you and I both know that all of these other disciples, they're going to abandon you. They don't have the courage. They don't have the fortitude that I do. But you can know at least that I will have your back to the very end. I'm willing to be arrested with you. I'm willing to die with you if I have to. And Jesus replies, Peter, 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 pumpkin eater, you are going to deny me three times. And then a rooster is going to crow. And then there's his fall. If you go then to chapter 18, one of the servants of the high priest sees Peter sitting on the premises of the high priest's residence. And the servant says to Peter, you're one of this man's disciples, aren't you? And Peter says, I am not. And then two other servants or, or, or people, onlookers, 
ask him the same question. Or, do you know Jesus? I do not. Uh, or, or were you with Jesus? I was not. And then cock-a-doodle-doo, the, the rooster crows. And just so we're not too hard on people, this is, Peter, this is really easy to do, to look back and say, oh, Peter, he was a coward. What would we have done? Had we been in Peter's shoes, knowing what it must have felt like to not only be exposed, but, but then to have your own life put at risk because you were a supporter of the one they're about to crucify. Right? We can be so hard on Peter and, and we forget that he was there. He's the only one out of the disciples who actually showed up. He was there. And he stood out, and he knew he would stand out. Galileans, like Peter, they stuck out like a sore thumb, especially in the elite environments like the high priest's house because of their proletariat, you know, blue-collar accents. Peter was a professional fisherman. So (coughs) went went on a trip to Israel a few weeks ago. Some of you are in the room who are on that trip. There were about 40 of us. It was wonderful. Uh, it was our 2020 trip to Israel that had been delayed for a few years. And uh, almost every gift shop had plates and mugs and other sort of household items, uh, you know, owned by, you know, the, the locals in Israel. And the, 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 the saying on these plates and mugs was, Shalom, y'all. And, and you know, we're, we're all like, they get us. They get it. Look at that. They get us. No, they don't get us. They're mocking us. And, and, and they're making money off of it. They know who their people are. They know that it's the Bible Belt people who come to Israel to learn all about Jesus and, and be in the Holy Land. And, and so let's, let's create goods and services that we can profit off of. And they'll think we know them and get them. I'm teasing. I'm teasing but I'm also not. This was the experience of somebody like Peter walking into this environment. He was not welcome there. Uh, He was made fun of, especially for the way that he talked. And the moment he opens his mouth, he's exposed. Here's a key detail. When Peter is In the middle of betraying Jesus, it says that he's sitting by a charcoal fire. There's one other place in the New Testament that mentions a charcoal fire, and that is the charcoal fire that Jesus has started on the shore as he awaits Peter for this instance right here. I'll I'll get to the reason why in a minute. But Jesus greets Peter, eager Peter, with the scent of Peter's own betrayal. He goes straight to the source of Peter's deepest shame, and he's not subtle about it. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit in a minute. But there's his pride, there's his fall, there's his shame. <coughs> like us, when we lose our way, when we fail, we, we tend to isolate Jesus, or, or I'm sorry, Peter did that. He isolated. He, he went off by himself after he betrays the Lord. And we become susceptible to what we could call the, this prodigal 
self-contempt that was that was expressed by the prodigal son returning home to the father after he'd squandered half of the family inheritance on wild living and prostitutes and everything else. He has no place to live. He has no friends, no means to, to, to eat. And, and he says, well, if I put together a speech, maybe my father will accept it, but I, I won't presume to go back as a son. I'll, I'll go back and I'll say, father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. As if you were ever worthy. You you don't become a son by being worthy. You become a son or a daughter by being born. By being chosen to be born. And and, and chosen to be kept. You don't don't become worthy to be a, a daughter or a son. But nonetheless, he has this speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your slaves. In other words... I'm willing to just eat crumbs off of your table and the table of the rest of the family. If that's what I need to do in order to survive, make me like a slave. He's desperate to connect somehow, even if only in a small way, with home. But Jonah, Jonah dove off of a boat because he was angry at God and running away from God. Peter dove off of a boat because he was angry at himself and he was wanting to run toward God. He wanted to know. He he had to hear it from the Lord himself. Is there a way for us to be good again? So, have you all ever seen the movie Dumb and Dumber? I'm I'm still upset that it wasn't even nominated for an Oscar. Um, But Dumb and Dumber, there's this scene in there where Lloyd Christmas, who is played by Jim Carrey, he has a crush on this woman named Mary Swanson. And he says to her, what are the chances of a girl like me and a guy like you, and that's what he said, I'm not, it's no Freudian slip, uh, ending up together? And she says, not very good. And he says, one in a hundred? And she says, no, more like one in a million. And he says, so you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah. Peter is after the same thing. What are the chances, Lord? I've betrayed you. Everybody fled. I, I, I get that, but I denied you. With my own lips, I denied you. What are the chances? One in a million? Jesus' answer, the chances are one in one. Welcome back home, Peter. Which brings us to his restoration. You know, Peter is a career minister. He gets his moral authority from his integrity. And he loses his moral authority when he loses his integrity, or so he thinks. You know, Mark chapter 14, after the third time Peter denies Christ, and, and bear in mind that Mark's gospel is actually Peter's gospel, because Mark was Peter's scribe. And so everything you read in Mark is from the vantage point firsthand of Peter himself. And in Peter's gospel, also known as Mark's gospel, it says that after the third denial, Peter cursed himself. He has these assumptions. 
I've lost my ministry. Surely I've lost my ministry. I've lost my faith. I've lost my friends. I've lost Jesus. Am I an imposter? Am I a fraud? Am I Judas 2.0? Having thought all this time that I was the the real deal, but but, but having actually been a fraud, have I been self-deceived? Have I lost myself? So this great song called Karma Police by Radiohead answers that question. For a minute there, I lost myself. You didn't lose yourself, Peter. You just lost yourself for a minute there. Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is so un-American because Jesus doesn't cancel people. He is so anti-Twitter because he doesn't cancel people. He will not. He refuses to reduce anyone to their worst moment, their worst decision, their worst season, their worst behavior. He refuses to build a caricature of somebody as if the entire definition of their life is the worst things about them. He refuses. In fact, what he does instead is he covers all of that stuff. And when the prodigal comes home to the father prepared to make this speech and do all the penance and work himself back into favor as if that could even be done, the father doesn't even let him start his speech. He just says, welcome home. We're throwing a party for you. My son is back home. We're all going to celebrate. And that's what Jesus does with Peter. Also in Mark's gospel, a.k.a. Peter's gospel. Uniquely in this alone among the four gospels, when the women show up at the tomb and the angel of the Lord says to the women, Jesus is risen, the angel says, now I want you to go tell all the others, which all the gospels say, but Peter's gospel, also known as Mark's gospel, uniquely says, I want you to go tell all the others and Peter that I'm coming to them and to not be afraid. You go tell that man who betrayed me three times more than Judas did that I am coming to him, that he is safe with me, and that my homecoming is also going to be his coming home to me. He need not fear. That's Jesus Christ. His mercy, that kind of mercy, that kind of pardon, it's yours too if you want it. You'll hear Jesus has three questions for Jesus or for Peter and they're all the same question. Do you love me? One time for each betrayal. Do you love me? (coughs) Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. (coughs) Restoration. The best saints have also been the worst saints. And then secondly, forgiveness is only the first step for a Christian. So for every person, there's this invitation that, that Jesus Christ extends. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Come as you are. 
But with that invitation comes a caveat. I, also, I love you too much to let you stay as you are. So you need to understand that. When you come as you are, I'm going to change you. I'm going to rearrange your furniture. And I'm not going to ask you to be my consultant in terms of how I do that. And I'm not coming to be your consultant. I'm coming to be your Lord and your Savior. But come. Come as you are. And then I'll turn you into the very best version of you. It's going to hurt sometimes, but it's also going to be fabulous beyond your wildest dreams. So, so back to the charcoal fire. It seems, doesn't it, that Jesus could use some sensitivity training. Like, really? That's, that's the first thing you do, Jesus. Before you, the conversation even starts, you, you light a fire that's that brings Peter back to that moment. I mean, you all know this, right? Like, even if you're 52 years old and your parents are still living and you go back to the, the, the home that you grew up in to visit your parents, you, you suddenly, just by being in the home, smelling the smells, you feel like you did in junior high. Just by being back there with all the familiar things. Peter is being taken back to his worst moment with the scent of a charcoal fire and with the sight of a charcoal fire that Jesus greets him with. I mean, have you ever been in one of those conflicts where, you know, you hurt somebody and you're awakened to it and you say, oh, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? And they they forgive you. They forgive you and you move forward. But then later on you get in a, a conflict with the same person and they bring up what they supposedly forgave you of, and, 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 and they use it against you again. So that's what Jesus is doing here. He's already been forgiven. Did you hear it? This was his third resurrection appearance, not the first. Jesus had already lavished all of the disciples with grace and forgiveness, including Peter, and yet here he is on his third appearance reminding Peter again of his very worst moment <coughs> and of his very worst potential. It is especially disorienting to Peter that the Lord brings up his forgiven past. I mean, what about Micah seven nineteen, Lord, where it says that you have cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea and you've forgotten all of our sins? Were you kidding when you told us that? Were you serious when you told us that? That we hear you wrong. But here's the answer to that. Because Jesus knows all things. Because Jesus knows you more than you know you. And because Jesus loves you more than you love you. Only Jesus has the perfect wisdom to rub your nose in your forgiven past. If he needs to. But here's what Jesus is up to that Peter doesn't realize. He is stirring the memory of betrayal up for Peter Not to reinforce that Peter is a betrayer, but to reinforce that Peter is not a betrayer. Peter, I don't want you to interpret this moment that we are in right now in light of that bad moment you had when you betrayed me. I want you to to interpret that bad moment you had in light of this moment we're having right now. And I want you to understand... That as you smell the scent of the charcoal fire as you did back then, I loved you as much then as I love you now. 
There was nothing subtracted from my love and affection for you back then, even when you were right in the middle of the third betrayal. This is what you have to understand. You were never worthy to be called my son, but it's not about your worth. It's my love that tethers you to me, not your worth. And so in your worst moments and in your best moments, I love you the same. And I will keep you. (coughs) He doesn't ask Peter, will you obey me from this point forward? Will you be loyal to me from this point? He doesn't ask those questions. He says, do you love me? Do you love me? Lovers hurt each other sometimes. They betray each other sometimes. But if the love functions the way the love is meant to be, the love deepens, not in spite of, but because of the fact that those betraying moments happened and the restoration followed it. N.T. Wright, uh, Anglican bishop, unpacks the meaning of this text in, in a really meaningful way, in my opinion. He says, somewhere deep inside there is a love for Jesus. And although goodness knows you have let him down enough times, he wants to find that love to give you a chance to express it, to heal the hurts and failures of the past and give you a new work to do. These are not things for you to, earn, to do to earn forgiveness. Nothing can ever do that. It is grace from start to finish. So just, just be careful about how you judge Peter. Be careful about how you judge anybody. Let's just say my hand. Let's just... Think about the person that you are prone to judge the most in your heart, that you think the least of. So just think about their whole life as this hand. What you know about their whole life is represented by maybe the fingernail on my pinky. The rest of it you don't know and you don't understand. You don't understand their story. You don't understand their hurts. You don't understand their wiring. You don't understand their betrayals, how they've been betrayed. You don't understand their guilt. You don't understand their shame. You don't understand the burdens they carry. You don't get them like you think you do. And so don't dare reduce them to a fingernail and your interpretation of what that fingernail is. You do not know them, Jesus does. And that's why Jesus and Jesus alone has the wisdom and the righteousness to rub something in their face if he wants to. But you don't get to do that. I don't get to do that. Be kind, the adage goes, because every person you meet is fighting a hard, hidden battle, especially the likes of Peter. This is part of why Jesus said it's easier for tax collectors and prostitutes to get into the kingdom of heaven than it is for some pious preachers. Because it's a lot more about the trajectory of your heart than it is about the look of your exterior. See, prostitutes, because of all of the the wounds and, and tragedy that got them into that place in the first place, and then all the regret and shame that, that, that goes along with, with being in that place poises you to want, need, savor, desire desperately the love of Christ in a way that many ministers never do.
God judges by the heart, not by outward appearance. And so give Peter, whoever Peter is for you, give Peter a break. Peter is a man who's haunted. He's haunted by a ghost. It just so happens to be a holy ghost who comes to him with a scent of smoke. Peter's opportunity to become whole. It's a lot like EMDR. Some of you know what that is. Some of you administer it as therapists. Some of you have received EMDR who have had therapy, and it's this, it's, it's this trauma treatment, right? And, and what it does is, it, is, it, is it, it, it's an effective tool to neutralize and disempower your most traumatic experiences from your lifetime. But it's counterintuitive because what EMDR does, instead of having you look away from the trauma that you've been through, it has you stare at it straight, head on, like you never have before, to look into the depths of what happened to you. That is the only way to neutralize and disempower the trauma over you is to name it, call it what it is, look right into it, square in the face, stare at it into the abyss. But here's how grace works. It also requires you not to look away, but to look straight into the abyss. Not by the damage done to you, but to the damage done by you. The more you are ready and willing to engage the atrociousness of the darkness of your heart the more liberated you will be in the love and forgiveness of God. Because the Apostle Paul, he he said it. The Apostle Paul, who refers to himself as, as having once been a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, as Hitler was to the Jews, the Saul of Tarsus had been to the Christians until he became Paul the Apostle. It's with that awareness of, of how dark the abyss was in his own heart that Paul wrote the words, where sin abounds or quite, quite literally where my awareness of sin in me abounds, the grace of God and my awareness and experience of the grace of God superabounds. It abounds all the more. You know, Tim Keller famously said, there is no sin so small but that it deserves damnation. And there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. It's the trajectory of the heart, not the look of the behavior that determines where somebody is with God. And then finally and briefly, a miraculous catch awaits all those who receive this. So you'll see that these are professional fishermen, and they didn't catch a single fish at night. And that's when the fish are out at night, right? I I used to go a-fishing with my grandpa Fred in Hickory, North Carolina, and we would leave at 2 a.m. because that's when the fish were out. But here it is, in, in, the, in the heat of the day now, they, they've spent all night, they've caught nothing, and Jesus says, throw your nets that way, in that direction. And interestingly, the direction that he told them to throw the nets was in, not in the direction of where the Jews lived over here, but in the direction of where the Gentiles lived over here. And he's telling a boat full of Jewish men to throw the nets in the direction of the Gentiles. People that he said, you'll be fishers of men, throw the nets in the direction of the Gentiles, and 153 fish. These nets are designed for 12 fish. And it says they caught 153, and the nets didn't break. 
hauled it in. There's your catch. And then they, they knew it was the Lord. The meta message here is that even in your areas of expertise, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. This is a community filled with professionals. It's a community filled with people who are running the city, running the educational institutions, running the financial institutions, of, et cetera, running the government institutions of Nashville and of, of, of our state. You know, you know, right, that you would not be able to do any of that had God not gifted you to do that. Like, you know that, right? Like, that, that, that you would not be able to accomplish anything that you've accomplished had Jesus not given you the power to accomplish it. It's all a gift. All of it's a gift. But the other thing is, for those of us who feel weak and behind, as King David prayed from a weak behind place in the 18th Psalm, in you, Lord, I can face an army. With my God, I can leap over a wall. It's all about Christ. Peter was nothing. Even though he'd been with Christ for three years, he was nothing without the mercy of Christ hovering over him. And yet he became a force once he came alive to the implications of what it meant to be forgiven by Christ. Not just commissioned by him, but forgiven by him. The courage that Peter had always imagined himself having was now his. If he gets one thing right, and it's all in Jesus' question, Peter, do you love me more than these? And he's not doing a comparison between Peter's love and the disciples' love for him. These means his reputation. Do you love me more than these things? Do you love me more than the approval of people? Do you love me more than your reputation for loyalty and courage? Do you love loyalty and courage more than you love your reputation for loyalty and courage? Because that's where I'm wanting to take you, Peter, where what people think about you means nothing to you. And what I think about you and how I have deputized and commissioned and love you means everything to you. That's where I'm taking you because only then will you be able to have the loyalty and courage that you've always dreamed of having. And that's what happens. Petra, Peter, whose name means rock, went on to be brave. Left a legacy of boldness and loyalty like none before him. So much so that in A.D. 64, Emperor Nero, it was Peter's time, and Nero commissions the, the crucifixion of Peter, and Peter says, oh no, sir, please turn my cross upside down because I don't regard myself as worthy of dying in the same manner as my Lord. And so they turn his cross upside down, crucify him in that way. So much for the coward. And look at Peter now. We're naming our sons after Peter. We're naming our dogs after Nero. And Peter is still catching fish on both sides of the boat. Matthew 4.19, Jesus said to Peter and crew, I will make you fishers of men. Today, living, there are an estimated 2.6 billion Christians around the world because of the continuing testimony of the likes of Peter. So what's the ghost that haunts you? What, what's your... What's your charcoal fire? Could it be the Holy Ghost? Could it be a holy fire that is after you? Could it be a sign that your best life is not coming to an end, but that it's only beginning as it was for Peter? I pray that that would be so. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, (coughs) I don't think it was a mistake when you put the most repeated command in the Bible 
into the Bible 365 times, once for every single day of the year. That command being, do not fear. And the reason being that you are with us in our sorrows and in our grief and in our sins and in our regrets. You're with us in all of it and you're for us in all of it. Lord, teach us what it means to be your daughters and sons so that we don't fall into this prodigal suspicion and self-contempt about ourselves as Peter did and as the prodigal son did. Father, you have not called us to be your slaves. You've called us to be daughters and sons. You've not left us as orphans. And so teach us what it means to live out of that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.